You are listening to Conversations with Chris Marshall, where I sit down and talk to top real estate investors and professionals who work with investors to find out how to become a top investor. If you are interested in becoming a top real estate investor, then be sure to subscribe to the show and to tune in to new episodes so we can level up and start or scale to success in real estate investing. Welcome back to another episode of the Top Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Marshall, and on the show today, we have Eric Smolinski. Eric is a Marine veteran and a commercial real estate investor, and we dive into his history, how he was able to go from broke to being able to afford a home for his mother and becoming a multimillionaire through different types of investing. He got started in high school through stocks and eventually went into the Marines, and we talk about how all those experiences kind of shifted and shaped his thinking and his real estate investing strategy. And uh, it was a great episode for anyone looking for some inspiration, for some practical knowledge on how to get started uh, from someone who's there uh, and has found financial freedom. So definitely a good episode to get into. Uh, So let me get out of the way and get on with the episode. Eric, welcome to the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing stellar. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Stellar. That's awesome. Yeah. It's uh, good to have you. Looking forward to the show. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about who you are, how you got started in investing, a little bit about where you're at now. Yeah, for sure. So my name's Eric. I grew up in New York right now. I'm 32, live out in San Diego. And I got started investing the same way I imagine a lot of people do is I grew up poor. I had a single mom that worked two jobs like so many other Americans, right? Nothing novel about my story. Um, but I just remember looking around where I was growing up and I always thought, this is tight. I remember like the amount of sacrifices my mom had to make in order to kind of make ends meet for us. Mm-hmm. And then I also remember, you know, things like being able to see through my bathroom floor into the basement and we didn't have the money to fix it. So my mom literally, it was embarrassing for her. She, So she would cover it with um, like floor mats Mm -hmm. just to hide it. So I just, I didn't like that. Like I didn't like the house being in disrepair. I didn't like growing up thinking like that. If I didn't have really cool lunch ladies at school, I times wouldn't have enough money to like get food. So, um, but the lunch ladies were awesome. They always, they could tell the people that kind of needed some help, man, and they'd hook you up. Yeah. But I just saw all of that and I was just like, man, I got to figure something out. So I started working really young. I started by splitting wood for a dude that I hunted on his property. Then I moved shale for him. And then I got working at a bowling alley, a bunch of odd jobs. Hmm. Um, And I was saving. And then I had a mentor in high school that said, hey, I know that you're working a lot. And he knew my family. He knew that we didn't have a bunch of money. And he essentially said, like, what are you doing with the money that you're, you're making from working? I was just like, oh, I'm just saving it. He's like, well, you should look into investing. So that was the first time I heard the term investing. This was back in 2007. I was still in high school at the time. And I remember it clear as day because everything, my life literally changed at that moment. I heard that word and I was like, oh, interesting. This guy that in my view at the time was super successful. If I looked at like high school, Eric at that guy, he would have been like Conor McGregor, filthy rich. That's what I thought about him because just, you know, my perspective was so messed up. Yeah. And so he told me this and I took it with that weight. And then I went up to the library and I was just like, I need to look at a book on investing. I just told the lady behind the desk. She sent me over to some books and I started reading 
Um, and then that's really how I got started was that right there. So I started kind of different than I think some of your typical audience, but I did start mm. with the stock market. And then I started to get good at that. I got into flipping things. So in college, I would invest in broken cars because mm. I used to work on cars as a kid. We didn't have money to fix them. So I got good at fixing cars. So I would buy broken cars, fix them, sell them. So I yeah. would flip that. I would flip motorcycles. Um, and then as I increased my just capital allocations, I got into things like angel investing, and then I got into real estate a little bit later. So that was kind of like my early trajectory stock market. I started there because the barrier to entry is so low. You don't yeah. have to have a down payment. You don't have to have credit. You don't need anything. Like you just have to open an account. Yeah. You know, that makes me think like, is there an, a space in most high schools where there's a section on real estate investing books? I'm trying to think back to my school days to like think, did we have any business books of any kind in our library? I mean, I grew up in like sticks in the sticks, the deep South of Southeast Missouri. I mean, it was, it was rough. We had 500 people from kindergarten to 12th grade at my school. So I can't remember if there's anything even close to an investing book in my library. Um, what did you, what type of, do you remember what books you found first? I don't, I don't. I remember one of them was an economics book. And I remember one of them was, I don't want to say it was the intelligent investor because I would be mm. too ashamed if I wouldn't recall if that's what it was, <laughs> but it was something intelligent investor-esque. So I just remember gotcha. reading both of them and the economics book, I was just like, this stuff is interesting, but man, is it boring, man, is this boring. <laughs> And then I open up the investing book and it started to become more interesting to me because it felt like yeah. the practical application of economics. That's the way I viewed it. I felt like when I was reading about investing in the stock market, you need to have some understanding of economic cycles, how economics work, but you're not studying economics to talk about Keynesian economics versus Bayesian. You know what I mean? Like you just, yeah. you're not getting into the weeds on that, which that just did not seem intriguing to me. No, uh, especially as what a sophomore, it sounds like you probably were a soft, sophomore or so, because you're, yeah. you're two years older than me. So, yeah, so I graduated in 09. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah. um, yeah, let's see. When I was a sophomore, I was face first into video games. I don't think I did much of anything outside of that. <laughs> yeah. I was doing a lot of hunting and working on the that little plot of land I was telling you about and then yeah, yeah. the investing bug man yeah that's awesome so you started off in stocks what what was a, we'll just talk briefly on your experience in there how how did you like it what type of I'm not a stock investor so I don't know a whole lot about it just if you want to talk a little bit about that yeah man so the stock market's really cool. I actually argue that for most people, it really is a logical add to most portfolios. And I really do believe that even if you don't want to trade like I do, mm -hmm. even if you choose something more passive, like buy and hold an index ETF that you dollar cost average into over time, there's benefits to that because it creates a little bit more idiosyncratic risk profile. That's mm -hmm. also why I went from the stock market into first residential, then commercial real estate. It's for that same exact process. So I started with what most people tend to do when they first begin, and I was just buying equities that I was familiar with. 
So at that time, Apple was becoming a big deal. Netflix, I remember being like the coolest thing that you could sign up to this website that would then send you DVDs because back, that's how it was. You know, yeah. for young people, that's gotta be wild to hear yeah. that they used to mail DVDs to you, which yeah. that was cutting edge technology for us. And I was like, wow, that's like really cool. And so I invested in that. I invested in Amazon. Um, so I bought a handful of stocks that started off doing really well. And, but it was like super small amounts of money. It was like two shares, three shares. Cause that's, I didn't have a lot of money to start it, like $3,000. So that's how I started. And then like most people, I was impatient and greedy. I needed more money faster. So then I thought, well, then you just trade and then you make it faster, right? That's how that works. Awesome. And guys, right, sounds like science to me. So then I started trading and I actually did okay. Like I wasn't making buckets of money, but I was doing okay. Like I wasn't losing a whole lot. And from there, I just kept getting like deeper and deeper and deeper into the weeds. I have, if you ask anybody that knows me, I have a very obsessive personality. As soon as I find something that for whatever reason I'm interested in it, I really do latch onto it like something wicked. And that's exactly what happened with investing my money is I started seeing it compounding. And I was like, this literally is a game changer. This literally is a game changer. Because one of the burdens I felt very early on, and my mom will tell you this, because I was just talking to her about this not too long ago. But when I was a kid, I told her I was going to buy her a house. When I was a kid, I told her that. So I was already thinking about that stuff when I was super young. And wow. I felt a need to materialize that. So it kind of manifested there first. And yeah, that's kind of how I got started with the markets in general. And then it's just evolved. Like I got into derivatives. So I trade products called options and futures. I mean, we don't have to bore people with that. They're just different financial products that offer kind of different return profiles. It's yeah. more of a tactical investment. And then it just kind of kept evolving from there. Gotcha. And then so from the stock market, you moved into investing into startups, actually. So how did that transition happen? What was kind of like your first experience into that? Yeah. So the first time I angel invested, I wouldn't even call it a startup. It was a single man business. Um, <sighs> and he was running an entertainment company out in Dubai. And he was the brother of one of my friends and they knew that I was investing. So he was looking for financing and he reached out and he said, are you interested in investing in this company? And I was just like, yeah, sure. Why not? I have money. Um, so then I started investing with him and I kind of, you know, listened to his pitch. I thought what he was doing was really cool. I did some market research on what the market looked like then, because again, this was back in what, two early 2010, something like it was when I was in college. Okay. Yeah. So it was like maybe 2010, somewhere between 2010 and 2013, somewhere in there. And um, Dubai was blowing up, mm. blowing up. It was becoming a huge tourist destination. So I was like, this seems like a great fit. Like, this seems like a great fit. So it started essentially with hard money lending and then advising. So I financed part of the company um, and I didn't get equity in that individual business. It was just for like a preferred return, essentially. Gotcha. And then I also advised, you know, on different some ideas on what the business could do to expand like that kind of stuff. And that's really my first foray 
into angel investing where it's kind of you know you're committing capital to very non-standardized products mm -hmm. and then from there it got into startups i'm actually in a pretty big startup right now that i actually create content for as well really really cool company um and it's been expanding from there nice that's pretty cool um so let's move into your real estate investing background oh. how did you first get into that first deal and then I'm sure you've talked to a lot of real estate investors about how they've started and the typical path. How do you feel like your stock and experience, your stock uh, stock market investing experience, and then the angel investing experience? How did that kind of like change your story when you entered into real estate investing? How did it affect it? How did it, you know, become different for you? Um, yeah. If you want to kind of go into that story. For sure. So really my first like deal, I would say was actually just a primary residence. And mm. I used the the VA loan to, to enter in and it was yeah. here in San Diego in Oceanside. And I think I bought that place for like, it was a townhouse, 1800 square foot in an HOA, gated community, pool, hot tub, that kind of stuff. It did have a two car garage, which is kind of a big deal here that was attached. And I got into that for like 369, I think was a sale price. So the loan was like 376. I want to say. And then I honestly, I thought I top ticked the market, which is just a, you know, stock trading expression for buying something at the very top. Mm. And I was, I was cool with it. Cause I was just like, this is, it's in a great spot. If I can't make good money on this deal, then I can rent it. And so the way I made that purchase was with two end states in mind. The first one was either to sell it for capital appreciation if the value did go up. But since I thought I top ticked it, I 100% was prepared to just rent it and just mm -hmm. kind of build inventory that way. And that was a really smooth kind of process for me. Maintenance of that house was super simple. And I think the way that my trading background experienced or kind of like translated over to that experience was it made me super selective on where I was buying, how I was financing things, and then what I set my expectations to for the deals, mm -hmm. because some people are ecstatic to see a 4% return on a rental property or something like that. Whereas for me, I'm like, if I'm making somewhere between 15 and 25% in the stock market, like this, this is not great. Like this yeah. is like yeah. pretty bad return on the money. But then I started learning about the tax advantages that came with it. And that's when I was just like, wait a minute might not make a ton of money here in all circumstances. I actually have made some pretty good money buying and selling houses outright on the capital appreciation, mm -hmm. but the, the tax benefits were massive. So from that point forward, making sure that I had some sort of housing exposure, whether it be primary and then investment real estate, primary for periods of time, whatever it is, but always adding some sort of um, investment properties because the tax properties that fit into the broader picture are massive. So it started with just buying a primary residence. Then when I moved out, I rented it for a few years. And then that's when I was kind of very carefully timing rates before we moved into the house that I'm in now. And at that point is when I started also buying houses with some friends via small syndicates. It was like super small partnerships. Yeah. And we were buying things in like Florida, kind of these military towns. That was the big thing we were looking for is areas that I could always lean back on putting a military renter in there. 
because yeah. I've heard so many nightmares from people renting, right? It, you can have great experiences, not to talk bad about it, but people tend to talk about their poor experiences. And that was a big one that I've heard from a lot of people. It's just these nightmarish renters and then the process to try to get them out. So I was always like, I want to be able to rent to military people because yeah. I was in the military. I know how they operate. And I also know the capacity to always go to the command. If there's a problem with the military person, you can go through the civilian route. You could try to, you know, legally get them out via the court. Da, 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 da. It's a long, expensive process. If you go to the command, they're not, they're not gonna hand, they're just not gonna stand for it. They're gonna yeah. deal with that pretty quick because they don't want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I got started. And then it just evolved from residential to commercial and yeah, so on from there. So you had started doing pretty well, it sounds like in college with with the mm -hmm. investing and you had that investor mindset how did you where did the military come in why did you choose to go that route after having this experience because a lot of people go into the military from a background similar to yours because they don't have the money they feel like that's the only you know path forward for them to get out of you know whatever situation in their life but it mm -hmm. sounds like you kind of were already out of that situation so why did you choose to go down that path I think it's because I set myself on it. My brother was a Marine. He was enlisted. I went in the officer route. So I did go through uh, college ROTC. I earned yeah. a commission. And the my mentor that introduced me to investing, he was an Air Force colonel. And so a lot of these people in my life that I respected went that route. So gotcha. part of it was like, honestly, I... I think no matter what background I came from, I was going in the military. It was just whether or not I was gonna go officer enlisted. When I was a kid, again, like I used to dress up in camouflage, play army man, you know what I mean? Like it was just yeah. something that I started from a little boy. And I feel like that just kind of warrior ethos always resonated with me. And I needed to find a way to express that in a positive place. So the military was gonna happen no matter what. And in college, although I did start I definitely was returning well. I didn't start with a lot of money. So it's not mm -hmm. like I had money falling out of my pockets in college. I yeah. probably had, you know, maybe $100,000, $100,000, $200,000, something like that. I don't really remember between the different assets, but it was definitely no more than $200. Do you feel like time I was getting out? Do you feel like at that, at that point in college, your mindset was where a, a lot of investors, they can see like the path forward. They can see that if they keep doing these certain actions, in the next few years, they'll be at, you know, at this point. And if they keep going, they'll be at this point. Do you feel like you're, you had already had that mindset in college or did that come later on? Cause that's, that's really like the point where people are like, well, now I can buy myself out of a job or I, I can't, I do have financial freedom, so I don't need to work anymore. I'm going to do only the things that I love. So do, did you have that mindset during that time in college? I had that in high school in 2009. I still have my original projection. I mean, yeah. And I actually keep that. I have a an Excel sheet with all my different kind of finance stuff in there. It's like a trade log, but I have yeah. all my real estate yeah. stuff in there too. But I always keep that tab. I've actually had to update it because it's from old OG Excel. Oh. So like none of the stuff carried over well, um, but, but I've kept it. And it's because that's when I embraced the concept of exactly what you're talking about, delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. And that delayed gratification and taking any money that's coming in and feeding it into the machine is an absolutely essential concept to really accelerating our growth curve. 
because I could have had a higher burn rate based on my general returns first in the stock market and then in the other stuff I was doing in it and I would have been fine. Hmm. But I wouldn't have became a millionaire before I was 30 and I wouldn't have be where I'm at now at 32. Yeah. It's because of really embracing that delayed gratification and continuing to feed the machine and then having a roadmap. Because one of the things that always helped me when I was sacrificing these smaller things up front, right? You don't get to buy the Nike t-shirt. Nike for me at the time, I liked them because I played basketball and mm. it always, you know, it's like a big brand, at least when I was in college for basketball. So it's hilarious to me. Cause now like a Nike t-shirt's like 30 bucks. But you know, at the time when I was looking at them, that was like, there's no way I was spending that on that because yeah. that's X number of dollars that doesn't go into this process that then doesn't translate into this goal that I have for myself. And there I was at Walmart, you know, grabbing the stuff I could off the rack for super cheap. Yeah. I didn't care at the time. It was all about feeding the beast. So exactly to your point, I developed that super early and I don't know why I've tended to have like that long range planning aspect to my brain. But I read in college, Stephen Covey's um, seven habits of highly successful people. And one of the things that always stuck to me in there was begin with the end in mind and then put first things first. Mm. So both of those things are kind of these constant things that drum around in my brain. And then you look at the way that the Marine Corps plans things. We do a lot of reverse planning. You start with an end state and then you figure out the plan to get to the end state. So I think that's how that kind of mindset developed so early for me. Hey, let me cut in here real quickly. If you are a starting or scaling real estate investor, I want to highly encourage you to take a look at our software, Ari. You can find it at www.areii.io. We take care of everything from analyzing properties to doing your bookkeeping to connecting you with lenders and helping you get the lowest rate possible for financing your deals. We do it all. We're there for you. We are your partner, your mentor, your assistant, right in your pocket. Take a look, learn more, www.areii. It's pronounced Ari. Thanks. Now back to the episode. You also mentioned something about your obsessive personality earlier. Mm. I, th I think that's so powerful for entrepreneurs of any kind. A lot of people think that it's like a bad trait, but I notice a lot of military guys who and gals who are now entrepreneurs or investors, they have that trait. I don't know if it's something that's like in that type of DNA. What Do you, do you want to add anything on to obsessive personalities for entrepreneurs or investors? I think you, I think you almost have to have it. Mm. I really do. Because there are massive periods of time where shit sucks. Mm -hmm. Things aren't going the way you want them to go. Things might have a lot of risk involved. You're working harder than you want. But one of the things that keeps you going back is that you've committed to a specific task and process. And even when it doesn't look good, you're showing up to it. I yeah. really think that that's a big part of it. When I look at somebody like, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, but when I look at somebody like Elon Musk, or if I look at somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, these people mm -hmm. that have unlimited money, essentially, they could have stopped working decades ago, Yeah, but they choose not to, right? There's a bigger thing that they're moving towards. And that's always fascinated me because it's mm -hmm. always told me that 
money is super important. Like, don't let anybody tell anybody otherwise. Like, what I like to, one of my mentors used to tell me, you know, like money can't buy happiness, poverty can't buy you shit. So it's a really useful concept, right? Yeah. What I tell people is if you're happy before money, money just amplifies. You want money. There's money is good. Yeah. However, it did tell me when I see these people with buckets of money that they still continue to do other things. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. No, I have. I'm, so there's um, one thing I want to add into like the, the, the thing. There's a saying, embrace the suck in military yeah. culture. Like I have a t-shirt. Yeah, you have to have that mentality for even if you're doing well, like there's going to come a point where like it's not going to be well. You, even if you got to a point where you're financially free or whatever stuff happens, you got to have that like mentality being able to embrace. It just means like being able to find joy or contentment at least in really shitty times, <laughs> no matter how hard yeah, the challenge is. Really what it is is it's it's actually very stoic. Yeah. And the reason why it's so stoic is that you accept things that you cannot change. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a shitty scenario that you cannot change, you have a few choices in front of you, right? To your point, you can embrace the suck, learn to find little joys in there so that you can actually take this really awful experience and make it into something decent yeah. because it's going to happen anyways. Or you can complain and moan about it, lament it, and then just get dragged through it all the same. Yep. <laughs> so most of us really do embrace that first choice. Yeah. Uh, I think the, um, I don't know if it's necessary for success, but I feel like that's something that most successful people have chosen to do is to embrace the suck. Um, yeah. I, I don't know Mark's like end goal in mind or like why, he, why he's still doing it, but like, um steve jobs his was like he wanted to ding the universe he wanted to flick the universe right he uh he wanted to leave his impression on it um elon's is getting to mars colonizing mars like he's got like in, insane vision you know um i don't know why zuck still does it and i i think that's why you don't see him out there like he's got facebook and he's got meta but it doesn't it doesn't when i look at his story it doesn't feel the same as elon's same. right and so i don't i don't know why they keep cho choosing to do it they could easily stop my vision for my life is not nearly as big as as theirs and it's probably because i'm not to that level yet um you know i'm, I'm hoping when i get there i'll have an even bigger mission you know but um I feel like it's a pretty good mission and probably unattainable for, for my lifetime. But um, what is, what is your mission? Why are you working? You're, you, you hit millionaire by 30, you're still going, you're kicking butt. What is your big why? Yeah. It's fascinating. You bring that up. This is actually one of my favorite things to talk about because it's something I'm still figuring out. Mm. So when I was growing up, I saw money and I thought, I'm going to make tons of money so that I don't have to worry about it ever again. And I don't have to work ever again. And then I started getting to a point where that was a reality. Like I pay for my mom's house. I pay for her expenses. I live a great life now with my lovely wife. Like we're stoked. And I started thinking about it and it's like, so what's the, what's end game, right? Like I'm 32 is, is the move here to just stop right? To stop, live off of what we have, live a great life off of what we have, and then just be done. And then I thought like, 
how fucking sad that is if mm -hmm. that's it like it i just thought that was so empty and i think what happens is is when you don't have money or when you work really hard on something you don't like you're looking at relief that's your first obsession relief relief from not having money or relief from having to do this thing that you hate so obviously you pick the inverse of whatever is causing you that strife tons of money never have to work again but then when you have that optionality you start to think about it and you're like wait a minute what is the purpose and i went through this really really fascinating stage during covid where i started reading because during covid i saw a version of myself i didn't like at all and it scared me so one of the things i did to kind of first it was to punish myself but then it was to try to help get me back on a path that i thought was good i started forcing myself to read every single day just a little bit i i think i started with like five pages every single day before bed no matter what have to read and i started diving like really deep into stoicism and I started seeing a lot of parallels because if you look at somebody like Marcus Aurelius, leader of the Roman Empire, the dude could have done a lot of things. He really could have done a lot of things, meaning he could have lived the most comfortable, lavish life like we saw quite a few Roman emperors after him behave, but he chose not to. And he was a practicer of Stoicism. So when I look at him and I think, okay, he had everything, literally an empire, he had everything. Yeah but he still chose to go sleep with the dudes in the military because he thought he should be there with them because he started as a general. And I learned a lot from him. So going all the way back to the why and the evolution of my why, first it started from escapism. I wanted to escape my circumstance and I thought that was going to be the end state. Then I got there, I analyzed that escapism, that end state, and I thought how empty that is, how unfulfilling that is. So then I decided to figure out what makes me happy. What do I like to do? I really like to learn. I'm constantly learning. I literally love learning. Before this call, I talked to a buddy that I do commercial real estate with, and I talked to him for like 90 minutes about different deals that are coming up, how they're valuing them, how they think about them, just all of those things. And I'm not even in most of those deals. I just want to learn, man. Yeah. I'm just fascinated. So that's the first thing is learning. And then the second thing is I am one of those people that I genuinely derive satisfaction from helping people. I think that, and again, this goes back to stoicism, but I think that each and every one of us literally has a contractual obligation to our communities to create a positive, positive interaction, a positive net draw. We gain a lot from communities, but I think it's on each of us to try to give back more than what we're receiving in different capacities. So one of the things I thought is, well, I had different mentors that made a massive difference in my life. Without them, I would have been down a very different path without a doubt. So I thought, start doing stuff like this. Start talking with people like you. I'm not looking to build a following, although I do like having people that are interested in my work. It is egotistical to a certain degree. It makes me feel important, but that's really not the primary motivation. Like the primary motivation is passing forward this stuff that other people share with me that literally changed my life in the hopes that even if literally if one person catches a piece that then sends them down a different path genuinely i'm happy with that that makes me happy whenever i get people that send me an email or they reach out to me on youtube or whatever it is and they they tell me a little bit about their story and some of the positive changes that have happened 
it is massive. Again, from an egotistical perspective, it yeah. makes me feel cool that what I'm doing is helping people. But far more important than that, in my opinion, is the fact that these people have an opportunity to change their life based on information, just like I did. And yeah. that, I think, is huge. So that's really the why at this point. I it's think that's... I think yeah. it's a very fair why that's that, that little bit in there is like the seed of, of my, why my parents, uh, they, they were in a very similar situation, very poor. We didn't have much. There was times we were living in cars, but years later, after I had started real estate investing, I had found out that my dad had the opportunity to purchase a duplex when, mm. uh, my sis, my older sister was first born and he could not find anyone to help him get the down payment. And so he gave up on it. And so I've been thinking for years, like, what would the trajectory of his, their lives and, you know, ideally my life, I don't know if I would have been bored in that scenario, but like, if I would have, what would life look, have looked differently? Like if he had started by getting a duplex at that age and learning him to be a landlord instead of back breaking, back breaking construction work or barely scraping by, you know, and, uh, just like that, helping people through that and giving them opportunities that they didn't, I think is a very noble why. It's massive. And yeah. again, I always, I like to, my whole platform, the whole thing I try to talk about is like the no BS experience that I've had. That's why I bring up the selfish aspects of these things, like integrating my ego, mm -hmm. because there's people that do things for other people and they pretend that it's pure altruism. And it's, yeah, not. I, it's not in, in general. I don't believe it. Is. No. It might be, but I don't believe that to be the case. That's why I go out of my way to integrate those elements because I feel like people are so used to being so effectively marketed to yeah. that it just warps the view and it creates this just nonsensical scenario. So I think it's really important to integrate those elements. And I think even from your story, I think a lot of people can connect with parts of your background and the stuff that you're working on. But I believe that making individual people better mm -hmm. seriously makes better communities and seriously makes better general living conditions for all of us. I really do believe that. And it yeah. might be a little too whimsical. It probably isn't going to manifest to any significant degree, but that's why I focus on these little progress points. One person, man, like one person's a change. Yeah. It's a, what's a sick the saying? It's a, enough. You help just one person, right? Um, mm. Yeah, no, that's super cool. I love that. Um, this was a really cool episode on like mindset. Um, not so much on like the, the tactical real estate investing stuff, but I really enjoyed this. Uh, we, we do a lot of tactical talk. Um, on the show. So I, I really like getting to do these ones because these are really hard to have these conversations around mindset and, and focus and discipline. Um, so I appreciate you being honest with all this stuff. I think we're going to move into the last couple questions that I like to ask everyone. So starting off, any last tips for starting or scaling real estate investors? Um, I think make a plan. That's the succinct answer to that is make a plan. I think without some sort of roadmap that accurately depicts where money is going and how money is going to compound for you, it's very difficult to move in a meaningful direction, especially with real mm -hmm. estate, um, because a lot of that stuff has a slightly longer roadmap than yeah. the yeah. stock market is. When I'm holding properties for real estate, 
very especially commercial properties like i'm holding them for at least five years typically decade plus so you're working on a much longer roadmap and if you don't think through the plan early on you can make costly missteps that you can fix but are completely preventable by making yeah i like that uh where can listeners go to find out more about you connect with you learn about you know what you might be able to help them with or anything like that uh esinvest.com that's the easiest spot that lists all of my stuff i'm primarily on youtube and is that ian es invests with an s at the end correct invest.com i'll put that in the show notes as well um and then finally is there a question that i should have asked you that i didn't that i forgot about slipped my mind that you think i should have asked it's funny because when I interview people, I ask that same one because I got nice. that from like a, a list. I looked it up on Google. It was like, you know, good questions okay. to ask. Or, yeah. Okay. I, did you think of that question on your own? Or did no. You look at so it my own? podcast mentor has a show called The Deal Scout, and he asks it to all of his guests. And he's in like episode like 400. I don't even know how many episodes he's done. He's done a lot, but he's been doing that for years. So uh I stole that from him. <laughs> so you got it from him. Do you know if he made it up or did he I, look it up? I'm just curious who the father yeah. of this question is because it's a really great question. I don't know. I, I love the question. I, I'm, that's a really good question. I have to ask him. I don't know. Well, that's my question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think the, the main thing is you're really good at selecting questions for your audience. I think a cool question to ask people is what would you do differently? That's a, mm. a typically a fun one that can open up a fun dialogue. That's the only thing I could think. Would you do anything differently? Because I, I have a very mixed feeling on that question. I try mm-hmm. not to think about the things that I do differently because like I've I've dabbled in stocks, but I was bad at it. And it's because I gave up. I know it was too short, short of timeline. It was really early in my investing career. I try I dabbled in cryptocurrency way long ago, like 2000 eight or something like that. You know, like I owned Ethereum and Bitcoin a long time ago, sold it off, never made any money on it. You know, so like there's things that like if I would have changed, like I'd be a billionaire or whatever right now. So I try not to think about this. What are your views on it? Yeah, I actually share your view, but I also differ from your view. When I'm analyzing my previous experiences, I look at them in two lenses. The first lens Mm -hmm. is I, like you, I don't think of it deterministically like, oh, Mm. if I had known Bitcoin was go to a gajillion dollars, obviously I would have kept it right. That's just armchair quarterbacking, looking back historically and like picking things that you would change because you know the outcome. That's less, that's less the way I think about, because I share that with you. I'll do kind of a a postmortem on things to see if I felt I reacted well and whatnot. But then the second way that I look at what I do things differently is sharing information for other people that might be at a more close spot in their life yeah. in the periods of time that you might be referencing. So one of the things that I would do differently is I think if people early on create a roadmap that doesn't limit their mindset, that's what I would change because mm-hmm. I never expected to create the success that I've had. And again, high class problem, right? Boohoo, Crimea River. But it led to a really interesting period in my life during COVID where like I came across this point where I was just like, what's the fucking point? 
I like lost, I lost, I lost direction because for so long I was moving towards this one goal, this one endpoint, expecting that I might not ever get there. And then in relatively young, I flew by it. So then my guidepost is gone. And I was just looking at this landscape thinking, what now? Mm -hmm. So if I could go back, I think this initial goal that I had probably set a lot of limits on my mind as I was making decisions in my 20s. I was probably more risk averse than I should have been, stuff like that. So the one thing I would change if I could go back to my early 20s is to create an aggressive roadmap and be okay with it. Even if I don't hit that ultimate aggressive objective, that's okay. But I was being too much just scared, risk averse that I picked something apparently too conservative and I think that that hampered some of my development. That's my guess. Mm, I like that. That's a really good answer. That was a really good answer for it. <laughs> good. I literally just made all that up on the spot. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> awesome, man. This was a great episode. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, any last things you want to plug or talk about? No, man. Stoked. No. I'm, I'm really hopeful, awesome. you know, that there's little pieces in here for people to grab. But thank you for doing yeah. what you do. I think people that take the time to make this kind of content for other people, like I said, even if it connects with one person, that's massive. So thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. See you around. Hasta. Thanks for tuning in to the Top Investor Podcast. If you are a real estate investor, we want to connect with you. Like our favorite quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson says, Every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that I learn from him. We believe we can learn something from everyone, so even if you are just starting out on your real estate investing journey, head over to the link in the description to connect with us, and we would love to hop on a call with you. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show and follow us on the socials at Top Investor Pod. While you're at it, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review so we can help more people become top investors. Until next time, this is Chris Marshall signing off. Go out and become a top investor. See you around.